0: Good morning, City Light Church. Uh, my name is Mo. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've been super encouraged by the series that we've been going through. We've been walking through the five solas, the five primary teachings of the Reformation, and it's, it's pretty much the doctrines that have set the tone for the last 500 years of uh, Christianity. And so far, what we've seen is we've seen that Scripture is our authority alone. Uh, we've seen that God alone deserves all the glory. And today, uh, we're going to um, take a look at and discuss the beautiful reality that salvation comes by grace alone through faith alone. And, and, and we're, the, the fact that we're made right with God by faith alone, we're justified in right standing before God by faith alone. And, and, but the interesting thing about this, so this is a, an essential doctrine, an essential teaching when it comes to salvation, that by grace alone through faith alone are we made right with God. We have a, a right relationship with him. However, in our nature, we still have this tendency to push back on that. And, and, it, and it's, it's, it confuses me. I'm like, why does our nature work so hard sometimes to push back on faith alone by grace alone? Well, I think a big part of it has to do with our American dream view of prosperity in life. I think that that's kind of where it stems from. We we like the idea that, man, if you pull up your bootstraps, everyone has a shot, right? If you work your tail off, everyone can earn, can achieve, can get whatever they want. Basically, if you work for it, you've earned it. And another way to put this is that with our relationship with God, we like the idea of working our way to him, through doing enough good things and, and achieving enough things so that he might accept us, so he might give us his love, because for some reason we think we have something to offer him. So here's the issue, though, in, the way of, in that way of thinking. The issue comes when we're looking at our relationship with God, it's this flawed presupposition that sin primarily has to do with our actions rather than the darkness that's in our heart. You see, we're really good at behavior modification or changing how we act or do things, but the thing that we can't change is the flawedness of our heart, the flaws of our heart. And so we're, we're, we're in this courtroom setting with God, right? Like we, we are all in a courtroom setting with God, and we're counted as guilty. Guilty before a holy God, and there's no way that us in and of ourselves could wipe the slate clean, and so we have to ask the question, man, how do we get the, 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 the slate wiped clean? How does our guilt get removed? Well, guess what? It has nothing to do with anything that you can do on your own, and has everything to do with what God has already done, and so let's take a look at God's Word in the book of Galatians chapter 2. If you have a Bible, open it up to it. Um, my brother Phil won't be reading the U version for you, but it'll be good. Uh, As we look at the text, uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 15 to see what God will have us know. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So the first point is works don't work faith does. Works don't work, faith does. So so Paul, in this section, he's talking to the Galatian church of how they can get right standing with God by being justified by faith alone. Now, right before this occurred, though, he had talked about an interaction that he had with Peter. Now, to give you some background on Peter, Peter, in the book of Acts, proclaims that you get relationship with God by faith alone, by grace alone. He proclaims it uh, loudly to people that, man, how, the reason, the way you get right standing with God is by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, not through following the law. And, and Peter's a Jew in the activity where Paul... Interacts with him and he's he's hanging out with Gentiles, which is beautiful, right? Because prior to the gospel, Gentiles and Jews, man, they didn't intermix. In fact, they didn't like each other at all. But the gospel says, no, Peter, a Jew, can sit down with Gentiles and have some chicken and enjoy themselves, right? Like, like that's what's going on here. But then the high school cafeteria situation happens. Everything is fine and good until these other Jews walk in the room who they call Judaizers. When they walk in the room, our brother Peter pushes back from the the cafeteria table and decides to go have a seat with the the in crowd. Now this in crowd, the Judaizers, they believe that not only do you place your faith in Jesus, but you also ought to uh, start to practice some of the Jewish laws and regulations. You see, the cool table was a group of religious folks, and and the outcasts were people who simply placed their faith in Jesus. And so uh, it says that Paul called him out to his face. You see, because the reason why is because these people were adding to the gospel. They were creating a yoke, a weight that was far too heavy to bear. They believed that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, but then you also needed to become a Jew and follow the regulations of their beliefs. And this changed the whole framework of the gospel, right? A, a, a decade ago, uh, there was this thing, this company called Altel. They were bought out by Verizon. This was during the time period where nobody, not everyone had smartphones. So some of you were probably in middle school, okay? Uh, anyway, it, uh, so, so I used to work for Altel, and I would sell cell phones. And, and usually you'd sell just a, a regular flip phone. Yeah, you, most of you don't know what that is. Uh, it's a phone that flips open, and has buttons on it. Uh, anyway, so we, we, I used to sell cell phones, and people would come in when the smartphones started to come in, and they, they'd want to buy somebody a gift of, of a smartphone, right? And, and at the time, it kind of confused me, but I'd sell it to them because basically what would happen is if they bought a smartphone and put it on a regular phone plan, the bill would go up, right? So people remember that. It's like, oh, it costs way too much for that. But people are like, oh, I'm so excited to buy this friend a gift, and I'm, I'm a good salesman, so I sold it to them. Um, even though in my heart of hearts, I thought it was a little strange. So you mean to tell me you're going to buy me a gift, but I'm going to have to pay more every single month in order to keep that gift, like, that sounds like some sort of scam, right? Like, is it really a gift if I'm still paying for it after you give it to me? Like, and, and that's what Peter's experiencing here. That's what Peter is pushing on these Christians. Peter's pushing on, man, here's a free gift from God, but also every single day of your life, you're going to have to pay for it, right? Like, that's, that's what they're adding to the gospel is that, man, you have payments on this free gift that you've been given, and because of that, it caused a separation between Peter and Paul. And Peter, Paul was like, no, bro, you're, you're walking out of step with the gospel that we proclaim. You're walking out of step. And you, in fact, you're aligning yourself with a false gospel. And, and, and here's the thing. The gospel says that we are justified by faith alone. And that anything you add to it makes it a false gospel. Even if you say by faith alone... I have salvation with God, but also works. Anything you add to it makes it a false gospel. A gospel that includes works doesn't work at all. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which means that all of us, and I mean all of us, have broken God's law, are breaking God's law probably this morning, and will continue to break God's law later on, and are found guilty before him. So let me ask a question. How many of you in the room have broken a law? like a United States law, I'm I'm talking misdemeanors, felonies, like, okay, even if you didn't get caught, raise your hand if you've broken a law. That means you sped a little bit, believe it or not, that's breaking the law. California stops, that's breaking the law too, okay? So everyone in the room at this point, right, all of you have broken laws unless you're lying to me. Um, Now, here's here's a question that goes with that. If you're standing before a judge, so say you did get caught, you're standing before a judge guilty how much good can you do for that guilt to be removed? How, how, much, how much could you do? Like, how much good stuff could you do to get your guilt removed? Well, if you're standing before a good judge, none, right? Like, there's no amount of good that you could have done before your crime or after your crime that would resolve you of your guilt. You could even be sentenced to community service, which would be good work, but your record's not clear. It's still on your record. And so before God, we have committed a crime. We have broken his law. And this is not some misdemeanor. No, we have sinned against a holy and just God. And there's no amount of good that we can do or no amount of good intentions that we can have that would absolve us of our guilt before him. At the end of verse 16, Paul says it this way. By works of the law... No one will be justified. You see, the gospel, the good news, is a simple message for salvation that anyone who places their faith in Jesus and his finished work of dying on the cross for sin, their sins, they're they're expunged, they're gone, and that person is declared not guilty before God. This kind of justification is beautiful because it's not simply forgiveness or simply a pardon from from our sinfulness, from our guilt. Forgiveness removes, so so here's how forgiveness works. It removes the resentment caused by one single action, but has no lasting effect on future transgressions. A a pardon removes the consequences of wrongdoing, but allows the the, the guilty um, verdict to remain on our record. That's how a pardon works, but the good news of justification by faith alone says that God doesn't simply forgive us so that we can become guilty again. No, that forgiveness actually spans all guilt and will never be counted as guilty ever again. Justification by faith alone, when it comes to God parting in us, it's not just a, a pardon and it remains on our record. No, our record is washed Clean by the blood of Jesus, current sin, past sin, future sin, gone forever, not counted against us. The moment we place our faith in Jesus, God no longer holds our record of wrongs over our head, but says that we're not guilty for all of eternity. That's what justification by faith alone is. Works don't work to attain salvation, justification before a holy God, but faith in the work of Jesus does. Let's pick it back up in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. So point two, works still don't work. Faith does. So there's, there's two fears here that Paul's trying to address in verses 18 and 17 and 18 and one of those fears is that people think that we can teach too much grace right and that if we teach too much grace that it'll give people license to continue on sinning basically saying that if we're justified by faith alone then what motivation will we have to not sin and and if justification by faith alone allows us to sin then that makes jesus a promoter of sin right Well, Paul says simply in verse 17, and actually very loudly, if you look in the original language, it's a proclamation, certainly not. It couldn't be farther from the truth. In our sinful nature, for some reason, we believe the lie that more rules, more laws, more regulation produces good behavior. How's that worked out for us? Like, we live in the United States of America where we actually have lots of laws, and all of you just confess that you break that law, uh, and we just continue to break them, right? And then they give us more laws, and then we continue to break those laws. So, so how is that working out for us, the more laws that can pile on more laws, which basically increases our guilt upon guilt upon guilt? We, by nature, are rule breakers. That's who we are. We need a new nature. And that new nature comes from grace. To say that, there's a, that there can be an overemphasis of grace would promote law-breaking. It, it, it's, a, it's actually a low view of God's grace. It's a low view of the immensity of that grace that he offers. 1 Peter 2.24 puts it this way. He said, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed Works might temporarily change our behavior, but only grace can change our hearts. Only grace can transform our hearts. By his wounds we are healed. By his grace we've been changed, and by his love we've been transformed. Rules have never and will never change a rebellious heart. Only grace can do the work of that. Only grace can cause a heart to walk in obedience to the Father. The second fear that Paul addresses here is in verse 18 it's the assumption that we're forgiven just for now right that God for some reason will at some point if we don't get our act together start to hold our record against us and over our head and want to punish us that he's going to go back on his word so my wife admitted to me that sometimes there's days where in her parenting she doesn't walk by the spirit by her own but by her own strength now, before I put her on blast, know that I got permission, so don't start hating on me right now. All right, so she told me I could say this, but on those days that she's working out of her strength, it's hard for her to parent our children in grace when they sin against each other or when they sin against her. For example, she, she said there was a one instance in a day where she was, she was letting their behavior kind of control her mood. And when our daughter Evangeline noticed it, she kind of came up to mom and was like, hey, why are you so cranky? And my wife proceeded to say, Man, here's all the list of things that you guys have done today to make me moody and angry at you, even though those sins were dealt with and and presumably, in theory, were done, right? And so, in response, oh, Evangeline asked the question. She said, Can't you just let it go? Like, I, I thought we dealt with that. Can't you just let it go? Needless to say, my daughter, Evangeline, is really good, and she has a really firm grasp on the gospel of grace, especially when it comes to her own sin, Uh, and she teaches us about that daily, (laughs) but but the reason why I share that story is what I want to show you is that we have that same tendency, right? We're saved by grace through faith and are justified by God, but live as though he can't just let it go. In other words, God forgave us when we placed our faith in him, but now we think that he holds our sin over our head and is angry with us, and we can't trust him, which can't be farther from the truth. can't be farther from the truth and is actually farther from his nature. Both those fears don't come from a grace or faith-based salvation. It comes from a works-based salvation. So we're either trying to earn our salvation on the front end by sinning as little as possible or on the back end by retroactively working to maintain salvation that has been freely given. Let let me say that again. We either are trying our hardest to earn our salvation on the front end by sinning as little as possible or by on the other end of the spectrum retroactively working to maintain salvation that was freely given. So what Paul is saying here is that by doing this, we are rebuilding the sinful foundation of works-based righteousness that Christ tore down on the cross. In verse 18, when he says, I prove myself to be a transgressor, what he's communicating is that the more we try to follow God's law to maintain or earn salvation, the more we're actually sinning in doing so. It's a sin to try to earn God's favor by obeying his law. Because what happens is when we start to measure ourselves by the law and how well we follow it, we find that we fail, right? Like over and over and over again, you see how guilty we are. And we just start to spiral in that, right? Like we start to sin all the more because we see that we can't obtain righteousness through it. The law is a good thing. But you can't obtain favor with God through following it. We, we, we start to gain this false identity by doing so, and we just get wrapped up in it. In verse 19, Paul says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. You see, the law does matter, it is important. Don't let me stand up here and say that the law doesn't matter at all, it is God's holy and good standard. In fact, it's good for us. Like, it's it's God's best for us. If you look at God's commands, they represent what God has for us in human flourishing. They are good things. But what Paul discovered is that he couldn't live up to the expectation of trying to accomplish or appease God, and there had to be a better way than what he was doing. The law also showed him uh, the, the weight and the depths of what God went through to have a relationship with us. I mean, think about it. If you look at the gap of how holy and awesome and amazing and good God is, versus how miserably we fail at obeying his law, man, you get a glimpse into how much Jesus paid on the cross for your sins. You get a glimpse of the immensity, the bounds that he covered in order to cover our sin. You see, the law shows us how beautiful grace really is. That's what it's there for. In fact, Paul later on in chapter 3, verse 24, he says the law was a tutor that leads us to Christ. We have, do, and will break God's law, and that law shows us our imperfection, no question about it. It shows us how impossible it is to be justified by following it. However, what we get to see is that Jesus did perfectly follow that law and bridge the gap. The fact that he was the perfect payment for our sins. Jesus died so we can no longer be under the judgment that comes from the law. We are now covered by grace that comes through faith so we can live in response to that grace and not for the grace. Let's finish out with the last two verses, verse twenty. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. His works, my, my third point is his works worked so that our faith does. To be crucified with Christ means that the old me has passed away and there's a new me in his place. That the person that I was prior to knowing Christ has ceased to live and now there's a new person there. He took the penalty of death for my sin and gave me his righteousness. There's this great exchange that comes from Christ where I get his righteousness and he gets my sinfulness. And so what Paul discovered was that he had been given God, and that for him, on the basis of earning, it was done away with. He now lives to God out of the outflow of gratefulness to what God has done, not for God to earn salvation through self-righteousness. You see, the only thing that matters regarding faith is the object of our faith, and that's Jesus. That's the object of faith, No sort of self-help or faith in self or faith in rule following or following the law. All of that stuff is wishful thinking and not based on reality. When Paul says that it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, he's not simply saying, like the bracelet said, what would Jesus do? Now go do it. Like that's not what he's saying there. No, what he's saying is, how do I die so that Christ might live all the more? How does my nature get killed so Jesus can live in and through me? Our faith comes from knowing that there's no earning or nothing that we can do to gain salvation or right standing with God through our own works. Let let me give you an example of how this works. So I'm talking self-reliance versus living by faith. Self-reliance comes here on a Sunday morning with the expectations of 10 steps to a happy life or some how-tos. Like, that, that's how that works. So, so when you show up, your expectation is we're going to deliver to you a list of things that you can do to make your life better, right? And so that you can walk out and do it on your own, obtain on your own. Here's the problem with that. The yoke on your shoulders to fix your life is much heavier and far more complicated than 10 steps to a happy life. This type of moralism, it, it'll produce some, some self-improvement but it'll never make you whole. Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, the call to faith is not to, when you mess up, go run, to pull up your, your, your bootstraps to work it out. Like That's not the call of faith, but the call of faith is to come to Christ so that he might live through you. See, a proper view of God's law and God's grace, there's nothing that we can add to it. In a proper view of it, there's nothing we can add to it and there's nothing we can take away from it. And if the law is a tutor that leads us to Christ, that means the law actually isn't the focus. The focus isn't on obeying the law but seeing how sinful we are and how we can run to the Father in, in His embrace in the moment. That our identity isn't wrapped up in how well we morally look in front of people. To simply live a moralistic, rule-keeping life actually usually leaves us tired, anxious, and it's not really living. And the focus stays on ourselves and not Jesus. See, our motivation to strive for holiness in our life is not more rules and more regulation, but grace. One of the hard lessons that I've learned this last year in parenting is with my son Trey. And here's what I learned. It's not helpful to just give him a bunch of rules to control him. It actually does me no good to simply call him out on his bad behavior. It's not helpful for me to give him a list of things that he can do to improve. But where I've seen real change, real transformation, is when I give him grace and pursue a relationship with him rather than just trying to get him to do what I want him to do. And, And I think this allows my son to spend less time trying to gain my approval and more time experiencing the love and the grace of his father. So as we walk in relationship with our Heavenly Father, we start to take more of His Son's nature rather than our own. We are new creations. And as a new creation, I don't believe that it's possible for us to follow Jesus, be with the Father, and not have conviction over our sin. If we continue in a life of habitual sin, it's not because we've been given too much grace, but rather we have a very cheap view of grace. If you're happy in walking in your sin without a desire to stop, I wouldn't say that there's no grace, amount of grace, there's not enough grace for you. What I would say is that you may not understand grace. You may not have tasted the grace that is offered. You may not have met the Savior who gives grace. When we have a proper view of grace, we ought to receive conviction over sin because it's a good thing for us. And our sin does grieve our Heavenly Father. However, it's not driven out of a guilty standing before God, but out of a betrayal of the love that's been given us in the identity, the new nature that He's given us. Grace should compel us not to jump back into fix-it mentality, but to jump into the arms of the Father and repent and confess so that we can receive love and grace. Not for his love, not to obtain his love, but actually in response to the love that had already been given. In verse 21, it says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul is saying that if we live a moralistic life, meaning striving to be a good person, we nullify grace. The the striving to be a good person actually doesn't come from God, but actually comes from the sinful nature. It's a pursuit of human autonomy because we like to think that if we live a moral life, we actually have control over what's going on. We want to be something for ourselves. We want to find significant in self And if that's the way that we get right standing before God or maintain right standing before God, then the only perfect man to ever walk the face of the earth died for nothing. That's what Paul's saying. That Jesus would have died for nothing if we can get to God on our own. And the truth is, he did have to die though, right? He did have to die because we are far worse than we think we are, and we're far more sinful than we're willing to confess. We needed Jesus to die, and it's good news that he did come and die because there's no point for us to have to clean ourselves up. In fact, he meets us where we are. There's no making yourself better and then coming to Jesus. No, Jesus comes to you. Just place your faith in him. Trust in his grace. See, like in our day-to-day, it's really easy to think that placing our faith in Jesus was a one-time thing, and now we move on to do it ourselves. But the reality is this this journey of faith is a day by day, moment by moment, placing our faith in the Son, Jesus, who died in our place. We can believe in faith that he loves us, he cares for us, he wants to be with us. Even on our bad days and our good days, he welcomes us to come to him, be in his presence, and continue to receive grace. So for the believer in the room that's received God's infinite grace, have you started to live as though you've, you're sustaining his love by your works? Have you, have you started to live as though you're sustaining his love by your works? Have you been busy doing stuff for God rather than just enjoying him? Jesus' grace is sufficient for all of us who are trying to be rule followers and earn his favor so the call for us this morning is would we repent, confess that we've sinned against God by trying to earn his love and receive his grace in the midst of that. Now for the person who hasn't placed their faith in Jesus, how's that worked out for you? How is trying to earn God's love and favor on your own worked out for you? Does it leave you anxious and tired and weary? How much is enough good works to get it? How could you ever actually know What he's doing this morning, Jesus is inviting you to stop placing your faith in yourself and place your faith in him because he is sufficient. And so to honor that this morning, that he gave his life for us, we're going to celebrate with communion. Now, as we do this celebration, it's a celebration of our union made possible through Jesus with Jesus, right? And so when you come up, when you come forward here, listen, when you come up here, I want you to remember something. That when you grab the bread, remember that it's his body broken for you, so there's no earning. And and when you dip it in the bowl of juice, that symbolizes, I want you to remember, his blood shed for you, so there's no debt to be paid. It's done. That's what it means that we've been saved by grace through faith alone. Amen? Let's pray.